What's up, Hyperfast Nation? On this episode of the Hyperfast Wealth Show, I sat down with two multifamily developers and syndicators. They started off doing small infill projects in Boston and now have scaled that. They're doing larger office to residential conversions, affordable housing, multifamily syndications, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show, Nick Earls and Eric DiNicola. All right, welcome to the show today, Nick and Eric. How are you guys doing? Good. How about you? Good. Give the listeners here at the Hyperfast Nation a little bit of background on uh, what you guys are doing now and just a quick uh, overview of how you got to that point in your lives. Yeah, so Eric and I, we've been friends since we were kids, almost 20 years now. Um, I got my real estate license out of college, was selling some smaller apartment buildings in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Um, That led us down this pathway of real estate investing. Eric and I kind of always had a rebellious streak, didn't want to work for someone else. Um, didn't know how we'd do it, but we, we figured, hey, we, you know, we're best friends. We'll probably do it together maybe someday. Um, and so I saw real estate investing as a way to do that. So we were saving up money for a couple of years in our early 20s. And then we were going to buy just a, a smaller rental property, but we saw a good opportunity in Boston in condominium development. Um, and that's Boston's a really strong uh, market population growth been really good for the past 10 years. Um, I know people say Massachusetts is a a declining in population, but depends on where you're looking and greater Boston area is actually increasing in population. Uh, People that are leaving like the, maybe the inner parts of the city and moving to the suburbs more. Yeah. Central Massachusetts, you know, the economy there is in certain parts is, has really kind of been gutted. Um, we're kind of more on the East coast of Massachusetts, um, where we focus and that's, you know, where we grew up as well. Um, and a lot of what's been driving the growth here is the life science sector. Um, it's been ranked the number one city last year above San Francisco now, actually, um, in 2021 as the strongest life science market in the country. You've got Moderna, one of the vaccine manufacturers. You've got a bunch of biotech firms here. So you're bringing in a lot of high income workers and a lot of those people want to live in class A luxury rentals, but a lot of them want to be homeowners as well, but they want to be living in the city. So that's where we come in. Um, We've been doing these kind of urban infill condominium development projects since 2015. That was our first project. What? um, Yeah. So that the condo, the condo deal was the first one you did. What were, what did that deal look like? What were the, what was the basic overview of that deal? So that was a two family. Nick found this two family um, in one of the boroughs of Boston. Um, you know, this, this is all different neighborhoods. Like, like New York, only the boroughs are much, much smaller. Um, and so 
This was uh, in an area called East Boston. It's where the airport is. Um, and this was a two family that was in a three family zone, um, which isn't too uncommon. It's getting more and more uncommon as developers kind of swoop in and, and fix these inefficiencies. But we, um, so Nick found this and he, and he came to me and said, look, this is something we got to invest in. There's an opportunity here to add a third unit, mm. convert this to three condos and sell these three condos individually to, you know, separate buyers, ho- homeowners who will live in there. Sometimes our projects, you know, you might have a guy who buys the whole thing and rents them as condos, but we, uh, so this one, we added an addition to the existing building, um, completely gutted the whole thing, renovated it. Um, turned it into three condos and everything fit within the zoning code, the setbacks, the height, the use as a, as a residence, the number of units. This, this was the first time you guys did something like this. Yeah. Yep. We did it the first time I come from a construction background. My father was a contractor and my brother was a carpenter, but we did just kind of dive in head first in terms of being developers. So did, did you already know how to get the plans, the permits, you know, all, all that kind of stuff? Or was that, was that new to you? I knew about plans and permits from contracting background, but uh, I'd say, you know, 90% of the stuff we know now was learned mm-hmm. through jumping in and doing it. Um, especially when you're talking about plans and permits, they change those rules every week. So. Right. <laughs> So did, did you just kind of know at a high level, I can buy it for this, I can probably sell it for this and it'll cost this much in the work. And then you knew it was a good deal and just kind of committed to figuring out the details and how to get it done along the way. Yeah. I mean, with it's, it's similar to flipping, right? Um, condo development because we're selling them at the end, the units. So we know, you know, we have an idea of how much it costs for construction. You know, that's it's not always perfect estimates. In our first project, we were off a bit, but we weren't off to the extent that it ruined the project or anything. Um, you know how much it costs to build. You know how much it costs to acquire the parcel. And then you know on the open market what those condos are selling for. Um, and we like to look at things in terms of price per square foot. Um, so we look at the cost per square foot to build. And then the price when someone buys it from us per square foot. And that can give you a really simple way to kind of analyze these deals quickly. So how, how did that first deal work out for you guys? And, and, what, and what were the challenges, you know, getting to that point? It worked out well. I mean, it's kind of Nick went through those three key components in terms of numbers. Um, one of them being the ultimate sale price that we had, you know, looked at comps and figured out, okay, this is what condos of this size and this caliber are selling for. And what ended up happening when we did finally go to sell them about a year or so after we started, um, the market had continued to go up. So we exceeded our projections on all three units. They sold pretty quickly. Um, we were able to kind of roll that into the next couple projects. Um, some of the challenges though, a big one with this was, um, you know, we, we had looked at the zoning code. Um, again, this is something Nick found that is kind of like a diamond in the rough. And he kind of taught me zoning and how to read the zoning code. And we had looked at it all and we said, okay, yeah, we can, we're going to maximize what we can do here. So the architect designed the building in such a way that it fit within all the zoning code requirements, all the setbacks, heights, measurements, everything. But 
when we uh, went to get the building permit, since this is just a direct permit application, you don't need to go through a zoning process to get anything rezoned. The plans examiner said, actually, you know, this doesn't meet the zoning code. There's these issues. There's open space issues, all this stuff. Mm. So that was pretty scary because we're thinking, oh, my God, this is there's a lot of money we just put. This is all the money we saved up. What are we, what are we going to do here? Um, and so there's a lot of back and forth. And this guy, the plans examiner, which hasn't really been our experience since, he actually, you know, eventually relented and realized, okay, you're right. I am wrong. You're reading the code, right? I'm reading it wrong. So you guys are all set. I mean, that's sort of a simplified version of what happened, but that was a major challenge at the beginning, which was very scary to be involved. You know, that, that kind of stuff happens more than you think. These, these municipalities, cities, they've added so many I know. rules and layers that the people yep. in charge, in uh, a lot of them, they just think they don't know them all or don't know it completely. No, they or, don't. Yeah, that's right. So after, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, after after this project was successful, uh, you move on now. I it sounds like you guys have scaled a lot in the few years since then. More condo development, more multifamilies, uh, affordable housing. Uh, what's been the key to scaling? How are you finding enough deals, and then how are you getting enough capital? So I think there's a couple factors there. Uh, one big one for getting deals and getting investors, which is a huge component of being able to scale in this industry, was building our brand. First few deals we did, we kind of ignored marketing. We thought, oh, we just buy you know property on MLS or whatever, but you're not getting the best deals there. And the market, you know, since it's so competitive, you can't find deals on MLS at all anymore. Anyways, so. Um, we had to kind of refine our marketing and get our name out there. Um, and a lot of that's just taking pictures of your finished work, having a portfolio right now where we've got HD, you know, drone videos, project updates. So when we ignored that at the beginning, that was definitely to our detriment. We could probably have grown even faster if we focused on our brand building. And that's one of them. And then, like I mentioned, investors is a huge one. Um, because if, you know, when we started our first three projects was all our own money. And, um, you know, you're not going to grow very quickly doing that. Now we had to build credibility um, by doing projects and, and making profit. So you might have to do your first project with your own money or maybe with your friends or something like that. But once you have that credibility and you have that brand, definitely take on investors um, because that that's been a huge component of our growth as well. How do you guys take them on now? And what is your structure? Um, it's really, you know, project to project dependent. Okay. Um, but typically what we like to do since we're, you know, we come from more of this condo development and sale background where there's not income coming in from the start. Um, and it's kind of a, a balloon payment situation at the end, we take on investors, um, who have an appetite for, you know, a higher return and maybe a little more risk and, you know, a bigger preferred rate of return at the end. And that's kind of how we do it. We say, look, you know, and we have other structures as well, but I'd say this is kind of the most common that makes the most money for our investors. You know, look, this might take a year and a half, but it could be as, as much as three years to do something like this. So we're going to give you a fixed rate of return on your money 
on your total investment um, at the end of this project when the units sell, or you know, as soon as the cost, the, the debt, everything's paid back, you'll start receiving. You don't have to sell all the units in the building um, to repay, but we'll give a fixed rate of return based on the total investment at the conclusion of the development. So that's why we're kind of able to offer a bit more because we know some people want that regular income but when you're building ground up construction, that's just not really feasible because there's no income. It's all just capital outlay expenses, um, construction costs. So they know kind of going in, um, but that's kind of the typical structure we do. You know, we have some other structures that we'll do, you know, we kind of have debt notes that will also incorporate into some of our, into some of our business where maybe um, it's capital that's used for multiple projects and business activities. Um, and we'll pay out regular distributions on those at, you know, much lower rate than you'd get on a project, but still a very high rate compared to, you know, typical debt. Um, and that allows us to be a bit more flexible. Gotcha. So, so that stuff doesn't have ongoing cash flow. It all comes at the end. So they get a higher preferred return than the ones you're holding. I'm, I'm guessing they get a lower preferred return and then some sort of percentage beyond that. Um, right. What, Under um, development, the highest return. Yeah, I was gonna say, what what do you think? What do you think people prefer of, of those structures, or is it just different appetites for different people? Yeah, I think it's different um, different risk tolerance, or just different almost interest, because some people are interested, just you know, putting aside the concept of investing. That first comes their interest in the concept of development and could they be involved with that in an investment way? And that's kind of a logical interest to have because, you know, in this country, we haven't kept up with the demand since 08 for the amount of units that we should be building. So it is, it's traditionally considered riskier because you're, you know, you're creating something out of nothing. You're not buying a traditional property, but when you look at the supply demand and balance, it's actually not as risky and you can get higher returns. So there's a certain type of investor who's after that. Whereas there's a certain type of investor who just, you know, they don't want to take any risks. They want to go kind of the vanilla approach, which I think, you know, ideally you'd, you'd be investing in a little bit of each, which we do. Yeah. The, the, the home gap you, you mentioned is, is quite interesting. I've been doing a lot of reading on that the last few years and from, from 2010 to 19, that decade, we, we built less than any other decade since World War II, which I, I found that to be quite fascinating. The other statistic I recently saw was a study done by the National Association of Realtors. Uh, the housing gap right now, or, or this was mid-21, so it's probably worse, but uh, in mid-21 when they did it, it was like 5.3 million um, and this is based on number of households, you know, formed and, and then number of new homes and, and rentals and, and everything. So in the middle of 2021, though, it was 5.3 million more houses needed to fill that gap. In 2019, so only two years prior, it was like 3.8 or something like that. So in that two year period, it went up a million and a half. And and, you know, we're talking eight months since that study. My, my guess is it went up at least another half a million or so. Because um, as you know, it's, it's, it's harder to build homes right now than it was two years ago. 
Um, exactly. So that that gives me great confidence in not much changing in what we've seen in the mar- the market in the last year or two. You know, we were, the the fundamentals behind it have stayed the same. Um, closely related to that, what have you, what have you guys done to mitigate? the challenges of building right now, you know, as, as you know, and I'm sure many of the listeners know, it's harder to get subcontractors. It's harder to get workers. It's harder to get supplies. You know, sometimes it's not even a matter of cost. You just can't get it no matter what you want to pay. <laughs> what, how are you guys handling that on, on all the projects you're doing? We've, I mean, we kind of take this very diversified approach. I mean, not in other asset classes, still all real estate, but within the real estate asset class of sort of um, different types of real estate. So, you know, we have some rentals on the side that we own that, you know, were bought as pre-existing cash flowing properties. We have the new condo development. Um, We have the office conversions um, that will keep as apartments when those, uh, you know, sort of as they finish and refinance at the end. Um, and then we also have the affordable development with the city of Boston. So having those different components to our business, um, you're dealing with, you know, you're still dealing with contractors who build and that's kind of the bottom line. And you, if you're building in a few of those, like we are a few of those components, you do need lumber and these materials, but by diversifying across those four types, we're dealing maybe with different professionals, dealing with different timeframes. We can try to time how and when we start some of these projects that maybe we can lock in prices or kind of project a little better. Um, and then if something kind of goes south on one of them, we still have some of these other opportunities. And when you're dealing for like, for example, with the affordable housing, you're dealing with the city of Boston, you're dealing with the municipality. So a lot, you have a lot more certainty as to what's going on there because they have certain requirements. You have to meet certain uh, contractor types, people who are, you know, sort of in the area who fit certain demographics. They, they want to make sure you have a very inclusive team that you've used. So there are groups that only work on affordable projects. So they're always ready for that, you know, and then we just happen to have good relationships with our contractors who have been there a long time. So they tell us, and this is more for like our market rate stuff. They say, look, you know, it might take eight months to get these appliances. So maybe we order the appliances while we're building the foundation instead of waiting, you know, when we usually would six months from that point, just, you know, a month or two out. So we just, we just have a pretty good system that has different components. We're diversified enough where it hasn't bit us yet. What, what's happened to your margins in the last two years, particularly on the, on the ones you're selling, you know, as, as costs have gone up, but out sales have gone up, have your margins, you know, on, on a project, let's say you bought it at the start of the pandemic, uh, have those margins expanded or contracted? You know, the market has gone up quite a bit. So I would say it's kind of a wash. It's uh, they kind of offset each other a little bit. Um, I'm thinking of a couple particular projects that we bought pre pandemic and we saw construction costs go up but we're seeing comps out on the open market that kind of offset that and we're back where we were to start with yeah most most of the people i've talked to uh, maybe their margins have either stayed the same or or they've even expanded a little bit you know because if you're it sounds bad if construction prices go up 30 percent but 
if if that element is only 30 or 40 percent of the total sales price and then the, the sales price goes up 10 or 15 percent you know even even though the sales price has gone up half as much as construction construction is you know a third of the sales price so when you do the math on it and a lot of times the rising cost of the materials and, and labor has actually led to this environment where margins are expanding which is it's kind of you know you wouldn't think that at first right you, right so it's, it's an interesting situation and you know I, I don't see it being resolved anytime soon like are, are you guys getting more suppliers like like you mentioned diversity and and redundancy but so are you trying to get more trades more suppliers so that if one guy doesn't have a crew available or supplies available you know you've, you've got a couple other options yeah one thing we do we try to do is just that get more suppliers but then also utilize multiple contractors when we have a gc on a job sometimes in the past maybe we've used the same gc in a couple of jobs at the same time whereas now it's it's really kind of one gc per job who's really unrelated. Maybe they don't even know each other. You know, sometimes in, in cities, a lot of the GCs and guys within an industry know each other, but we'll kind of keep that very separate. So it's almost like this guy doing this project for us has his whole own crew and vendors, this guy, same thing. So it just, it, it further kind of eliminates or not eliminates, but reduces the potential to run into the same issue and at the same time across two projects. Which, um, you know, out of all the different types you do right now, uh, which which types of projects are you the most excited about going forward? We really like these. Um, we've got a project right now. It's an old office building, historical office building in a satellite city of Boston. Um, and basically we're taking it. It's a 50% occupied or less right now. Been an underutilized building probably for a couple decades and we're going to convert it into apartments. There's some first floor retail. We're going to keep those. Um, and we really like this strategy. Um, we also have a 32 unit building, a, like a luxury building, five minutes from Harvard and MIT. And I, on paper, I'm almost maybe more excited about that one. But the, the potential of the office conversion is also very exciting to me. Um, and Eric could give his own answer. But, you know, this is a project where due to the fact that it's historical buildings and you have a lot of old buildings like this in Massachusetts, you can get state and federal tax credits, which really juice the numbers and make them pretty profitable. Um, and we're going to try to refinance and hold on to these for the long term. So if, you know, we're going to get our investors involved, everyone's going to get a nice return and then we'll be able to hold on to these buildings, you know, for the rest of our lives or trade them in 10 years, whatever we decide to do. But that has a lot of long-term potential. Whereas these condo developments, you make a make a big, you know, burst of money when you sell all the units, and then it's kind of over. So I like the idea of building for the long term. And um, with these office conversions, you can add more value even than just mm -hmm. trying to build from the ground up an apartment building. I think office conversions and even retail are kind of an exciting space right now because the the market is overall the market the real estate market's hot but 
I don't think you can say the same thing about office or even retail. Those, those have taken a big hit in the last couple of years. So, you know, you're, you're buying something that is a, a down part of the market and then converting it to something that is a super hot part of the market. So I think there's a lot of potential in those and we'll probably start seeing more of those, especially in cities. We agree, yep, exactly. What's what's the process? Is is it is is it much different? You know, the process on doing the the conversion, um, you know, as as opposed to something you buy, like like going back to that first deal you did. Obviously, smaller scale, but you know, buying something that is residential and then just getting more density or improving it is is the process much different? Yeah, I sort of the same principle as far as, you know, the analysis and, and the construction analysis and the end goal, in this case, you know, renting it versus the condo selling it, but still the same kind of principles. But I'd say where it differs the most is kind of the entitlement process. So that, that first one we talked about in East Boston, where we sold the three condos that we created from two, um, two units, that was you know, by right within the zoning code. But from then on, pretty much all of our projects in Boston, the new condos um, have been zoning projects where we had to go through a long entitlement process, get it zone, you know, get variances granted for different zoning violations that we had. Maybe it's a three family zone, but we're trying to build a nine or 10 unit condo building. Um, and that's gotten to the point where it's, every project, it seems more and more difficult. There's more and more red tape. You have more fight against you. Um, you have to go through kind of a political process, get people on your side, get, you know, get the zoning board to agree that your variances are sort of a hardship or, or whatever sort of reason they agree to grant them to you so you can build this thing. Whereas with the office conversions, it almost seems like at least in the areas we're choosing that okay, look, this is an underutilized old building. It's 150 years old, whatever it is. It's, we, we want developers to come here and fix this up. So they're welcoming. And then right away, before you even buy it, you, you contact someone at the city, say, hey, look, we're considering doing this. And they're, we'll get back to you right away. They want to help you. So it's a much faster project process, I should say, uh, for something like that, which might be like a 50,000 square foot building. And it's going to have 30, 40 apartment units in one of these satellite cities than just trying to build a four unit condominium building in Boston. You know, it's just the, the red, the difference in red tape and sort of how the municipality treats you as a developer is, is drastically different. Yeah. So you, you need, you know, then that all goes to, you know, your cost per unit. So you just need more, you need more units to absorb the the extra holding costs, attorney fees, all the stuff yep. it takes to, to go through that process. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's it's really just just a bigger flip, right? Exactly. Which you know, if, if you're listening to this show and um, you know you've, you've done some small flips, cosmetic, or, or maybe even, you know, a new build. Um, this, it's, it's not a big jump up to do, to do this. It's, it's, it's smaller than you think. I'll, I'll put it that way. I mean, what, what would you guys say to, you know, the, the, the smaller flipper out there, the fix and flip guy that, um, you know, is maybe thinking about dipping their toes and in, into to what you guys have done? 
it's really not as different, you know, as you might expect, or it's, it's pretty much the same thing, actually, um, just on a larger scale, but your job as the person orchestrating everything as the developer is pretty much the same. So definitely, I actually wrote a book on my website. It's called millions through multifamily development. It's like any, a free ebook. Um, you can get it at winterspringcapital.com slash development dash book, but it actually goes into this exact topic of how maybe you're a flipper and you're making, you have to do a whole bunch of jobs to make, you know, the amount of money you want to make annually. Well, maybe you do two or three of multifamily condominium projects instead of 20 and you're not scrambling around for deals and, and having to manage as much. It's actually simpler in my opinion, um, you can make more money with, with less stress because a lot of fix and flip guys depend on volume. So you get the volume all there and in, in one or two projects because you're doing multiple units. All right, guys. Well, uh, this has been amazing. I always like to end with a hyper fast round. If you're ready for some rapid fire question and answers, you can just kind of go back and forth on these. Fire them up. Uh, all right. First one, what's your biggest piece of advice to a new real estate investor? Uh, my biggest piece of advice would be just jump in. If you're thinking about it and you're kind of held back by maybe an analysis paralysis, you're trying to get everything perfect. Um, it's not always going to be perfect, but if you, if you don't do something, it's just, you're going to keep kicking the can down the road and you, you'll never make that first purchase. Oh, man, oh. turn two. Man, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good one. <laughs> I agree with that one a lot, the jump again. Uh, another one I would say for a first-time investor, I guess, is just look at your life situation. You know, when we started, we were young guys and we didn't have that much money. We kind of had to do these flips or condo development, as you call it, to generate capital. But maybe you're already have a good salary and maybe it's just more appropriate to you to invest passively like with someone like Dan or someone like us, um, look at the type of real estate you're interested in, the risk tolerance you have. Um, but I, I think, you know, trying to get in actively is, is not appropriate for everyone just because you're interested in real estate doesn't mean you want to be the, you know, the head of the show. It might be easier to just invest passively and you could retire off passive income if you invest enough. What's been, what's been the biggest challenge for you guys? How'd you overcome it? Uh, I'd say um, capital, probably. It was, it, a lot of people probably say that, you know, is, is the biggest challenge. And we just, we overcame it by, you know, initially saving, like Nick was talking about, it took us several years. And then we just started seeing and, and witnessing other guys who were kind of our level or our peers and, and saw some of them were really kind of, you know, growing quickly. We said, what's the difference here? I mean, did they just come from a lot of money or they, did they have another job? What, how did this happen? Cause we just, there's only so many properties we can buy at once, you know? And uh, we realized investors, you know, bringing in other people into your jobs really helps you raise capital. And once you kind of figure out the game of, of real estate and how to make money in it, and you, you just need to lock down that capital piece. And that's, that's kind of how you do it. And you can go from doing one project at a time to several by bringing outside capital in. Yeah. So again, that's a, a really good one. Um, <laughs> I just can't agree with him on that one. I, I'm in full agreement. 
All right, last one. Where do you guys see yourselves 10 years from now? Uh, 10 years from now, we're probably, again, you're probably going to agree with me on this, Nick, but you can obviously <laughs> have your own answer. Um, just at, at the stage of full passive income through real estate assets. I mean, our, our goal right now is to have three office conversions under agreement per year going forward. Um, to the and you know we keep acquiring sort of smaller rental properties on the side as we make a little profit can, can maybe a three family six family um, and so in 10 years kind of our goal is to be sitting atop the company where it's just all systematized automated passive income we probably won't even be doing as much you know new construction at that point anymore um, we'll just have assets that are producing income that we've built up continue to refinance pull out and, and acquire more yeah, I, my answer would be semi-retired and uh, hopefully have brought a lot of our investors into semi-retirement or retirement as well by that point. Awesome. Well, I love those goals. Love what you guys have done in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, before we sign off here, if people want to learn more about Lender Spring Capital or just connect with you guys on social media um, or, or whatever, uh, how should they do that? Yeah, so our website, winterspringcapital.com, ton of good articles that we've written about all the things we've learned over the years, uh, a couple of ebooks and guides there. We're also pretty active on Instagram, Winter Spring Capital, got real cool videos, updates of our job. Eric and I are also on LinkedIn, Nick Earls, Eric DiNicola. All right, well, thank you, Eric and Nick, for being on the show and to all of our Listeners out there and viewers on YouTube, thanks for tuning in. Please leave us some feedback, give the show a rating, and share this with other people that you think would get value from listening or watching. We'll see you next time.